Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Club Chimera podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is part one of a two-part podcast entitled Galahad's Goal and has a few themes. Long-time readers of my work will note that I'm picking yet another Arthurian metaphor, perhaps a forced one in this case, so please humour me for the time being. One of the main topics is the fabricated quest of the hapless dojo hopper, that rather less disciplined relative of the martial arts cross-trainer. This will touch upon my simple rules for spotting a good self-defence system and incongruity in self-defence and martial arts teaching. I hope it will provoke some thoughts. Are you on a fruitless quest? Are you simply asking the wrong questions? Or are you a teacher who's just playing lip service to the principles you claim to endorse? I hope you enjoy the show. We all want simple answers. People who are considering training in the martial arts want them. People who train in martial arts still want them. And people who teach martial arts often feel obliged to deliver them. Like King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, the promise of a Holy Grail is enough to drive different individuals on various journeys. The term Holy Grail is regularly banded about as a cliched metaphor of modern times. Nevertheless, I'm going to drag it out for one more round just because what most people seek in martial arts might as well be confined to the realms of mythology. The Holy Grail of Arthurian legend ushers in the beginning of the end of the Knights of the Round Table. There are various versions of the story, with this earliest example being a Celtic tale about the search for a magical cauldron. This pagan artefact is later transformed into a symbolic Christian cup of the Eucharist, allegedly first brought to Britain by Joseph of Arimathea in either 37 or 63 CE. These later far more famous versions of the story put it that this chalice was either used at the Last Supper and or was used to catch the blood of Christ when the Roman centurion Longinus plunged his lance into the Messiah after his crucifixion. The lance has also formed the basis of its own grail-like quest legends with assorted individuals claiming it has come into their possession. In the popular story, the grail magically appears before the Knights of the Round Table and then disappears into thin air. Individual knights then declare they will hunt down this holy chalice, and several of them go off on many different adventures in their quest. However, in the end, it is Sir Galahad, Lancelot's son, who succeeds before immediately ascending to heaven. The urge to seek something is a powerful and instinctive one. My life in martial arts has consisted of various quests that regularly turned out differently than what I first imagined. Due to my remote location and often fairly unconventional upbringing and lifestyle, I've often had to be out on the road and making long journeys to train at my chosen school. I chased the ninja myth for a year prior to settling into another martial art entirely. Locality won out, as it often does with most martial artists. But I understood that as soon as I could legally drive, I would be doing a lot of travelling. After some local tournament success and the lure of my circus heritage, my sights were set on the high-kicking Korean martial arts and later Chinese wushu to obtain the theatrical skills needed to put on a martial arts performance. After a few obscure tangents and different roads in different directions, I eventually achieved my objective and I did perform professional martial arts theatrical style, but it didn't turn out the way that I thought. And I decided 
that I wanted other things out of the martial arts world. I probably wanted something far more basic, to be completely honest. I entered a wilderness of sorts, absorbing martial arts information mainly for the sake of learning. Prior to my eventual time as a martial arts performer, and one of those diversions that I mentioned, I did a tremendous amount of annual mileage teaching kickboxing all over the country. I taught various different classes for another instructor, and it was during some of those travels that I had the opportunity to train in some other martial arts classes that happened to be running in the area. I picked up skills such as the Filipino Screamer, and I did start uh, my pursuit of Wushu around that time as well, which also exposed me to various traditional Chinese martial arts. So I had a kind of overlapping experience of different martial arts cross-training whilst I was teaching kickboxing, but also in the mind of wanting to become a martial arts performer. Once I ceased teaching European and American style kickboxing and my career as a martial arts performer ceased, I started pursuing traditional martial arts and I became drawn to Muay Thai and also the world of reality-based self-defense. This is where I consciously became a martial arts cross-trainer. Since then, my quests have generally been pragmatic, but I've been as guilty as anyone for wanting to believe the fantasy. Because of my background in martial arts cross-training, some people are prompted to ask me about the value of certain fighting styles. This is a classic example of grail hunting. The martial arts world is riddled with problems that prevents the mainstream from adopting a scientific peer-reviewed approach. We get lost in endless arguments where goalposts are continuously changed. Over time, I've mentally catalogued different types of martial arts students. Forgive me this indulgence, it's a generalisation and often unfair, but sometimes the familiar patterns are too hard to overlook. The archetypical martial arts grail knight is a living exemplification of the argument put forward by those who oppose martial arts cross-training. The term dojo hopper appears to be quite apt in this case. They flit around from one set of classes to another without a firm plan in mind. Often such people will be keen collectors of videos and books. They differ from the serious cross-trainer, who naturally migrates across different schools in a progressive fashion. Instead, they resemble a cross between a fan, a casual gambler, and a socialite with a shorter attention span than any of them. For these grail-hunting dojo hoppers, the work is in the transaction and the temptation of a promise. Such individuals love the alleged Woody Allen quote that 80% of success is showing up. They don't have a problem with showing up. They shop everywhere, especially at martial arts conventions and lurking around the corners of active training mats. But they are not known to stick around. By finding their way into martial arts social circles, they've discovered that most martial artists, including yours truly, like to talk. It's a weakness they readily exploit in the hope that our words will somehow give them the map to their grail. Unfortunately, experience of such people presents a different story. Many of the books and instructional videos they have in their collection are either unread or at least not absorbed. This is easily deduced from the substance of their conversation. However, they do like quoting Bruce Lee a lot. I tend to find that they're not so keen on being told that said quotes owe more to Krishnamurti, Mao Zedong, Napoleon Hill, or a Chinese proverb than the wisdom of the little dragon, but that's another story. Likewise, the advice you give them often falls on deaf ears. They will repeat it to you, maybe even rephrase it back in a manner that would have impressed Stephen Covey to show their understanding. However, the next time you see them, you'll hear the same questions and then get drawn into a lengthy discussion about some martial arts legend they think is God, usually Bruce Lee. Hearing what I've said, it's easy to assume that I'm unsympathetic to these dojo-hopping grail knights. It's true, I am jaded. Standing on one too many stalls at martial arts expos will do that to you. 
I also blame my impatience with their lack of self-awareness exhibited when they often hung around my old lessons. It's a bit like having a prospective customer turn up at your car dealership only to ask your opinion on a brand of car you don't sell. However, I can relate to the frustration of wanting to acquire knowledge quickly. I think I was a bit of a dojo hopper at times. Most of us get a thrill out of the idea of finally buying an item or scheduling a certain experience in our lives that we believe will make an instant difference. Therefore, to prove I wish these knights well on their journey, I will answer a common question. For my opinion, providing a simple criteria for a straightforward question. Is, insert martial art, any good for self-defence? Firstly, I dislike stylism. There's an entire volume of my Bullshit Zoo series of books that focuses on the problems with this particular form of martial arts tribal thinking. As my last podcast outlined, there is too much confusion inside and outside the martial arts world in defining self-protection to guarantee any individual school can offer such a service based on their name alone. Even so-called reality-based self-defence cannot be relied upon in this respect. I might justifiably warn a self-defence training seeker that a good proportion of Aikido and Tai Chi schools today subscribe to a dubious belief in the use of invisible energy as a weapon. It might be said about some schools, but not all, of the reality-based self-defence martial art of Sistema. My old answer was that I couldn't say whether a particular style was any good for the reasons previously outlined, and it was largely down to the teacher. However, I appreciate this isn't a great guide, therefore I decided to boil it down to three simple criteria. Essential hard skills taught in any self-protection programme had to include preemption, proactivity and pressure testing. Before I go through my argument for the inclusion of these three hard skills, it is important to help you understand my working model. Experiences working with, studying and training under some of the best self-protection people in modern times has led me to the conclusion objective-driven training develops a robust behaviour pattern. As described in my Protecting the Frontline podcast episode, a look at martial arts cross-training is a lineal pathway with many snaking detours running through it. Self-defence hard skills follows a similar model, except this time the detours are not choices, rather they're more like mud tracks you have slipped into after being off-roaded by that lunatic in the Volvo 4x4. My apologies to Volvo drivers. Now, rather than making an educated journey down this detour before remembering to return to the linear path, as you would have done if this metaphor was all about training, scrambling to get some traction on this mud so that you move back to the main pathway as quickly as possible. Everything is about getting back onto that pathway. Avoid the environment means you miss the lunatic 4x4 altogether. Defuse the situation in any way that stops a violent crime from occurring and you miss the 4x4. Anything after this point pushes you further off the road and into the mud. Another thing worth mentioning is that soft skills are present throughout my view of self-protection. They cannot just be neatly left in the pre- and post-fight stages. The in-fight presents an even larger battle to retain the right attitude discipline and to remain alert. Above all else, you must remain objective-driven. Preemption is a hard skill, but it is the final stage of a pre-fight and therefore is directly linked to soft skills. As Jeff Thompson once said, teaching someone how to hit hard is easier than teaching someone how to hit first. The preemptive strike, or action, relies heavily on attitude. Social conditioning and our response to the chemical cocktail we've come to call fear can make the average law-abiding citizen loathe to act preemptively. However, tactically, it is the best option, and if done correctly, is legally defensible. A good self-defence teacher will emphasise, demonstrate and illustrate these points. 
and reinforce this skill as a priority after you've satisfied all soft skills have been covered and the students understand that preemptive violence is a last resort after all other pre-fight options are exhausted. Teaching preemptive striking used to be a matter of controversy in the martial arts community. I say used to be, but there's still plenty of seminars and lessons I've taught in recent times to experienced martial artists who are surprised at the idea that the person who strikes first has the best chance of success in a violent altercation. Most are also unaware of how the law applies in such situations, often been brought up in the belief that self-defence meant fighting only after someone else had made the first physically violent action. However, it's fair to say that since the 1990s, a growing section of the martial arts community accepts the important role of preemptive striking and have adopted it as part of their teaching syllabus. The problem occurs in the assimilation of preemption into a reactive-based fighting method. The metaphorical weld is often an obvious scar on the entire teaching program. After preemptive striking has been taught, students go back to fighting from sparring distances and holding guarding postures, completely undermining what they've just previously trained. Kaplan's rule of instrument also crops up, and the fence is taught as if it were a static guarding posture rather than a concept for protecting one's personal space, engaging the physical intentions of a would-be attacker. I've even seen some teachers showing blocking techniques off the fence, completely ignoring the point of setting up a preemptive strike in the first place. I should mention that this isn't to discount the valid argument that success with reactions changes in accordance to the range of the attack. There have been tests conducted that show that the winner of many a fast draw or pistol duel in the Wild West was probably won by the duelist who reacted to the other duelist's initial movement. However, when the range decreases, success is tipped in the favour of the person who preempts his attacker. Most altercations occur around conversational distance, where blocking tends to have a low success rate when tested under pressure. If you want to check my road metaphor, success with a preemptive strike means that you off-road the crazy 4x4 and continue on your journey. This welding on approach is more obvious when we come to my second criterion, proactivity. Many who do teach preemptive striking in an effective way reveal the reactive nature of their base system when it comes to covering their next set of techniques. The objective observer notes that the bulk of information being taught in the class is based off reactive cues. Being proactive in a self-protection context can be defined by taking control and, if matters get physical, the use of constant forward pressure. It's not just about acting first, but about getting on the front foot as quickly as possible and staying there until there's no longer a threat. Self-protection's core lesson is about taking charge, which underlines the importance of attitude. When you're trying to survive, you're taking total responsibility for your own well-being, never relying on anyone else, least of all your attacker. A distinguishing feature of an assault is the relentless ferocity of one person against another. Rarely do we see anything like this in even the most intense match fights. The dynamic of the counter-assault is to get onto the front foot and relentlessly overwhelm the enemy until he's no longer a threat. There is no exchange, there is no feigning or drawing. Ideally, the defender preempts with a strike and then follows the strike with an uninterrupted rapid flow of similar attacks until an exit point can be safely accessed or until the attacker is subdued. Strikes may have to vary according to the attacker's reactions with the defender performing something I call an incidental combination. However, this isn't the usual set of orchestrated strikes designed to set up another boxer. Rather, adjustments are made as the attacker tries to recover or return fire. There is no pacing. The counter-assault is totally explosive and anaerobic in nature. If grappling or anti-grappling is necessary for whatever reason, similar principles apply and no assumptions regarding what the attacker will do in defence should be made. Unless an effective restraining, disabling or stranglehold or choke, 
Clearly achieved, these anti-grappling and grappling tactics are generally used so the defender might start striking and follow the same plan as previously outlined. Likewise, even if the defender hasn't been able to preempt their attacker and they somehow haven't been incapacitated, everything will be about regaining the initiative using such counter-offensive positions like the cover to get back onto the front foot. If the fight begins or ends up on the ground, the defender's tactics are linked to the main proactive plan. Whenever possible, the defender should seek positions that reduce their chances of becoming unnecessarily wrapped up on the ground. Certain ground pins, such as side control and the mount, have their place and are extremely effective in one-on-one -on -one fights. However, they expose the defender's back to other antagonists. The person being pinned need only to cling on to the person doing the pinning, and now the person in the normally dominant position becomes a sitting target. Pins, such as the neon stomach position, are a safer option, as they put the defender in a half-standing position with more room to monitor other threats. Unless control and restraint is the order of the day, the defender's priority is to transition from any pin back into a standing position. To say fights cannot be finished on the ground, there aren't situations when this is a valid option, but the priority of self-defence is safety, and the longer one is engaged in a potentially dangerous situation, the more likely matters will go south. I stress this from a survival perspective, and also a legal one. Prolonging a pin not only increases the risk of involvement from other antagonists, but it becomes increasingly difficult to justify self-defence in the eyes of the law. Fighting from underneath, either in an asymmetrical or symmetrical ground fight situation, the priority remains to get back to the feet. The defender looks to proactively disengage. This might sound like an oxymoron, but it's more than a tactical retreat. Everything about the disengagement is about the defender fighting the way back to a standing position. In the case of symmetrical ground fighting, disengagement might not be immediately viable in which case sweeping or turning the antagonist might be a better option. Then the defender should go back to the pinning tactics. Failing this, choking or joint locking is the last resort. Even so, these submission holes should usually be used to effect a sweep. You get the picture. Every situation should be regarded as a momentary detour from the inevitable objective. With this in mind, the defender is less likely to be reactive in their approach, even when they haven't been able to preempt their antagonist. Weapons escalate risks. Tactics might need to be adapted, but principles largely remain the same. Deal with weapons, like training children, should make the self-protection teacher think more realistically about their civilian teaching programs. The first thing it should immediately bring into focus is that, yet again, soft skills are incredibly important. Raising the stakes of the threat to a capable aggressor armed with a loaded firearm will limit the defender by making them a child and physical violence becomes an even less desirable option. Attitude and awareness become that much more important. Soft skills set the tone for everything. It's all about taking charge whatever strategy the defender decides to adopt. Sadly, this is rarely what I see in your average weapon defence class. What I do see is a lot of incongruity. Suddenly, the same teacher who has preached to his students that being reactive is a recipe for disaster in an unarmed situation starts setting up scenarios where the defender waits for an offender to attack with their weapon. I've often found myself in a room full of self-defense instructors that consider themselves pragmatists and yet want to drill everything around having an attacker make a dramatic rear-hand lunge with a training knife. This is despite the fact there is an abundance of footage of crimes that rarely, if ever, show this type of assault occurring. If the risks are elevated in an armed situation, then it seems rather odd to think that the method for defence should be in line with the one that you have discredited for unarmed defence. The tactics I teach against edged and impact weapons, which are overwhelmingly more common than firearms in the UK, are as follows. Assuming the defender has been targeted and he hasn't been able to immediately remove himself from an antagonist vicinity, the defender should raise the alarm. Drop the weapon! is an unambiguous command and certainly will get everyone's attention.
However, teaching this tactic isn't popular and doesn't make for a comfortable training environment. I've known many a student who just get embarrassed for, for shouting, drop the weapon. There's a strong reason why a lot of classes move away from doing a lot of role play work. I've known students who are excellent in a sparring situation and superb in hard skills pressure testing. But all of this goes to pot once they need to say something like drop the weapon or do anything to dissuade a violent situation from occurring. Like the unarmed examples described earlier, there's a single objective in weapon defence training. In this instance, I want the defender to be headed towards an exit point as soon as possible. However, if you're going to teach someone to run, you need to teach somebody how to run tactically. You don't want your student, if a situation should ever happen to them, to run blindly down some dead end. All serious self-defence students should be taught how to make a tactical escape. If the verbal command hasn't worked and the exit point is not available, the next tactic should be finding an incidental weapon that can be used to create space or act as a shield. Again, the use of such objects is not reactive but aggressive. Just like fighting from a compromised position, the defender is attacking the attack. He isn't seeking to just fence with the armed attacker, but wade him off using constant forward pressure until the threat is neutralised or a safe exit can be accessed. The next stage of weapon defence concerns getting cornered at the interview stage, where all exits are blocked and there's no accessible incidental weaponry. This is usually the point where many self-defence teachers start their teaching. In fact, they usually start a few stages further on when the attacker has already drawn his weapon. The weapon is either being used to threaten or the attacker is taking a stab, thrust, slash or swing. However, if we're to be teaching a proactive attitude, then tackling this stage first contradicts everything we have said about being aware and being preemptive. Identifying an armed attacker is a crucial area of soft skills training. There isn't much experience required to see that somebody is attempting to draw a concealed item, and once the gesture begins, it should be assumed the attacker is armed. Therefore, preventing this from happening is a more efficient tactic than waiting for the attacker to complete their draw and hope you can get your timing in. If blocking a punch at close range is considered to be naive, then attempting to block a handheld weapon at this range would be considered to be closer to suicide. Interception is a better description than blocking in this instance, and this should be a trained flinch response. The weapon arm should be brought under control as quickly as possible, and this process should be coupled with opportunistic striking. Everything from this stage of the fight is about damage control, as is the nature of all in-fights. I've learnt, but I don't tend to teach disarms. I'm more interested in attacking the attack and getting my student off the metaphorical mud track and back onto the straight road to safety as quickly as possible. Since we're covering plans and journeys going awry, I think I should mention that this episode has taken quite a long time to produce. In fact, it was a longer episode, uh, double the length to the one that you just listened to, but I've ended up splitting into two parts. This has been a combination of time constraints and a few technical issues this end. I apologise for the delay, but if there's any consolation, part two should be out very shortly. Right, big thanks to all the helpful feedback I've been receiving, as well as the kind words and support. Everyone's been great about this first podcast. Thank you for helping me to promote it. Special mentions to Peter Jones, Lee Sims and Vaughan Jackson. Be sure to check out Lee's new podcast, Striking Thoughts, which I'm sure most of you will find entertaining and interesting. Thanks to my friend overseas, the great Ron Goyne, for offering his honest appraisal and help. I highly recommend Ron's blog, uh, which goes under the acronym PUMA. Ron's unsolicited help and appraisal of my last podcast but has hopefully made this one a little better. Finally, my mentor and inspiration for this show, the one and only Ian Abernethy, 
who hosts an unbeatable long-standing podcast of his own, which I will be appearing on very soon. I have a few up-and-coming projects you might be interested in. Not only are my ebooks Mordred's Victory, which this podcast might be seen as a sort of sequel, and when parents aren't around, are available to buy on Amazon, Smashwords, and through XLN's publishing. But finally, the first instalment of my Bullshit Zoo series entitled Wrong Fu is due out soon. I'm also going to be running an open seminar in my local area of Oxfordshire. For those who don't know, I no longer run a club and have been mainly focusing my efforts in the past few years on teaching private students and private groups. However, I think it's about time I organise an event for people who enjoy my work to meet up with those who have trained with me and we get something semi-regular going. So I'll be running a series of seminars centred upon Club Chimera martial arts cross-training concepts. It will be open to all. Be sure to check out our Facebook and Twitter pages for regular updates on that. Don't forget the website itself, where there are tons of articles and resources, and as well as the YouTube channel. All these links are contained in this episode's show notes. Right, that's it for this episode. Part two will be out hopefully very soon, and we'll cover the last of the three Ps. That will be pressure testing. Here I've discussed the gradients of pressure testing in general, the different types of pressure test, and the distinction between a pressure test and a pressure ordeal. Go on to discussing different types of martial arts grail quests and the inspiration for dojo hopping. Please share this episode far and wide, especially off the website at clubchimera.com, and subscribe to it through iTunes or whatever platform you choose. Thanks for listening.